Um, our Bible reading is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 20. We start from verse 9 all the way to 19. Luke, chapter 20, verse 9 up to 19. Um, it's on page 1054. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so, that, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Please keep your Bibles open. actually whether that's uh, a story that would fit into Kenya. I gather from all that George and Casper tell me that uh, in Kenya you can easily send people to get what's yours and not come back with anything at all. Um, but in this case, it's, uh, it just goes to show that nothing changes from Bible days and uh, things, human natures uh, like that today as well. Uh, but we're going to uh, use that passage to answer as honestly as we can a very simple question, and that is, why do Christians fall out with each other? Now, I've asked that about uh, Muslims before, in my own mind. Why is it that some Muslims hit the headlines for killing people, while other Muslims tell us that it's completely against the Quran? And they both look at the same book, and one... Uh, takes life and the other doesn't. I think the only conclusion a baffled outsider like me can come to 
is that the Quran is not clear. If it can be read two ways, on such an important area as the taking of human life, then it can't be that clear if people look at the same book and then do opposite things. And we'd love Muslims, to be honest, with each other about uh, that discrepancy, which is pretty widespread. But at the same time, what about us? It's true the Christians don't hit the headlines for violence. Uh, the Bible is clear about that. So you don't get Christians uh, on the front pages saying, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to kill you. But there is still disagreement in the church, and we want to ask, why is that? Now, there are obviously going to be different reasons, some very, very small reasons, like uh, some people like one kind of music and other people might like another. It's not a very big difference, it's not all that important, but there is one area where there is serious, important disagreement, and this little story that Jesus said is going to help us to understand why that is the case. And the disagreement really is between the religious establishment or what we might call temple-type religion and on the other hand, Jesus himself. Okay, let's look at those two sides of the divide and start with temple-type religion. Because Jesus, in his story that he tells, that um, Catherine read to us so helpfully, is telling a story that is so helpful that anyone, absolutely anyone, can understand it. The Bible is massively clear. You will get the point, even though we're living 2,000 years afterwards, and none of us go in for tenant farming, and yet we all know what's going on. The farmers want to be the owners, or the tenants want to be the owners. And they won't recognize the proper owner when he comes. But the genius of that story is not just its simplicity, the fact that anyone can understand it's so clear. The genius of the story is that it is history. This is exactly how the Jewish nation and its history from the start can be described. The Jewish nation was called God's vineyard. They knew that in the Psalms it's written up there, but I think the first person who uh, logged it as that was the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. He says, I will sing for the one I love, uh, that is God, a song about his vineyard, my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He, that is obviously God, dug it up and cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of, crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? <coughs> when I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, 
That helps us to understand our little story when he comes. We understand that the vineyard is the Jewish nation. And we know that the people who God put his vineyard um, uh, under, uh, the ones he trusted, were the Jewish uh, leaders. And he sent prophet after prophet to listen to God. And so the prophets came and the prophets left. Uh, because they were killed, or sent away rather. And finally he sent his son, and this is history, because before the week is out, Jesus, after telling that story, will be killed. And therefore, uh, the nation of God's people will be taken out of uh, the hands of Jewish leaders, and they will be given to new leaders who will be the apostles and the vineyard will be opened up to non-Jewish people called Gentiles as well. It's a story of the history in a very simple, easy way for anybody to understand. It's a brilliant, brilliant summary of what took place but it is also a brilliant, brilliant explanation of the big divide seen in our churches today. Because the religious establishment uh, has clashed with Jesus uh, all through his life, but it's now hitting new levels uh, of uh, uh, conflict as Jesus exposes their self-interest. So if you look at the end of chapter uh, 19, the previous chapter, uh, it tells you nice and helpfully in our Bible, uh, 1945, Jesus at the temple. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling, making money out of the temple. It's written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, people know that bit of the Bible really well, too, because they say, well, that's the one occasion Jesus lost his rank. And so he went to the temple and started beating people up. And we might wonder, hmm, wish he hadn't. Why couldn't he have gone straight to those temple courts um, in verse 47 and just do the teaching bit? Why did he have to go and do the driving out bit as well? Better PR if uh, he'd uh, just stuck with the teaching. But the whole point is that Jesus didn't go just driving. He went to the temple to teach the whole week and actually he's in the temple driving out in the process of teaching that they have uh, sadly got the temple very, very wrong. And it's a serious thing that they've got the temple wrong because if you were here last week, you realized that the whole Jewish nation was about to collapse under Roman judgment because right at the center of the nation was the Jewish temple that was failing them and not teaching them what God was like and how he might be trusted. And the temple failed because it offered an alternative system of safety 
because it gave people the false security of saying, this is the temple, nothing's ever going to come close to hurting us. If you're in the temple, if you're doing the right things, if you're offering sacrifices, that's all you have to do. Everything will be all right. And God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet to tell them that is not how it works. And so, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, one of those prophets came along and said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and therefore we're going to be all right. So what they did was they put their trust, their security, in their religious system. As long as you kept the wheels turning there, then everything would continue as before. Rather than listening to God, the God of Israel who says, reform your ways and actions, rather than listening to that God, they felt their temple activity would keep them safe. Their temple, their religion would keep them safe. And therefore Jesus had to act against that, to teach that was not what should be going on in the temple. And a church today that lulls people into a false sense of security like that is also actually set against God, although it might seem on the surface to be all about God. And it is set against God because it does not ask people to reform their ways and actions. Or, Jesus actually used the word, is to reform, he used the word, repent, or to change. So temple religion, if you like, offers safety without the need to change, without the need to repent. And you will see that kind of religion, the, the, the warning systems are flashing Whenever you see churches that offer indiscriminate baptism, doesn't matter who you are, will baptize your children, that marries widely, however many times you've been married before, it really doesn't matter because today the simple thing is to take money in rather than to care for people deeply and to urge change. And so therefore we take funeral services, only talk about heaven because we want the funeral fees to keep coming in to pay the bills of the church. It's all about generating income and giving people a false sense of security in the process. You might say, well, that rather sounds like the Church of England, uh, which we uh, would identify with. But actually, you get temple-type religion in other newer brands as well. So, for example, where you have a temple worship experience that's full of activity but doesn't ask questions about people's morality, about their immigration issues, about uh, how they are honest with their money uh, outside of Sundays and the rest of the week, well, a church like that ultimately will leave the ministers making money and the people unchallenged. 
Churches like that are the new equivalents of what Jesus calls in 1946 a den of robbers. They are still operating today in most street corners in our country. That is what temple-type religion is all about. The alternative is simply Jesus. Because the contrast between what's true and false is entirely about how God reveals himself. Is it through the temple religion or is it ultimately straightforward Jesus? And when I say straightforward Jesus, I mean concentrating on what Jesus does. And you can see what he does in chapter 19, verse 47. Every day he was doing teaching. What about chapter 20, verse 1? Jesus was also teaching. So the way to reveal God, which is actually what the temple is meant to be doing, the temple is there as a great place to reveal God, but Jesus reveals God through his teaching. Not through the worship of the temple, but through the teaching that directly comes from him. Now, of course, the temple authorities object to his teaching, object to his teaching that their temple was wrong by throwing out and clearing out, uh, driving out uh, those who were selling. And they object to him doing that because they say he hasn't got their authority to do it. But Jesus very quickly deals with that. He points to John the Baptist, who didn't have their authority either but was clearly authorized by God because the people in chapter 20, verse 6, saw him as a prophet. So clearly they recognized that they had God's authority, only prophets had, and as a prophet, John had pointed to Jesus, who was someone greater than him. So if they understood that John had all God's authority, they will understand that Jesus had too. So Jesus is actually answering that question. What authority do you have? Well, just think it through. Check out what John said. You know what authority I've got. But from the temple's point of view, Jesus was just another little sideshow. And he wasn't that important. And he didn't have the authority that they felt they had, which was greater. But Jesus actually does have authority and he teaches about God and you can see how attractive God comes across in this parable. Have you noticed? First thing you might notice is that God is very, very good. You caught the flavor of it from Isaiah uh, chapter 5 as well, but in chapter 20 verse 9, he plants the vineyard and he couldn't have done it better. It's like he's found the best place and he's got the best gardeners to come in and do the best work. So everything has the touches of excellence. And then he, it's like he says to you, come here. And he blindfolds you and he takes you into the grand house and he takes you right up to the top of the house and he throws open the window. In the blazing sunshine, the gentle breeze, you look out on this perfectly laid out estate. 
and he says, it's all yours. Enjoy. That is the goodness of God. That's what God does with us in our life. In our life. Sometimes we, we know that things go pear-shaped and wrong, but even in those moments, we will have always got reasons to thank God and fall on our faces at his feet for his absolute generosity and his goodness. The right response for God's people who understand about God from Jesus is non-stop gratitude in their hearts towards him. That is how good God is. But you also see that he is patient. They don't treat God as God. They don't give him his due. And you and I know in the world that we live in today, if an estate agent went for that long without getting any rent being paid, they would instantly move to repossess. But God in his great patience goes back again and again and again, giving them opportunity to return to him. How patient is that? There is no God who can be described as this patient with his people, as the true and living God. It is staggering that he is like this. And he is so great. You look at chapter 20 and you look at uh, verses 17 and 18 and you will see what I mean by the greatness of God. He's so great that when we reject him, it doesn't mean the end of him. It does regrettably mean the end of you. It's, very, it's fatal to talk of God's goodness without also talking about his greatness in this regard, that he is like a rock compared to human flesh and blood. So if there is a clash, the damage is only going to be one way. Rocks hurt. I know that from painful experience when uh, David was about two and we were playing football in our little back garden in Kendall in the Lake District where all the walls are made of rock. Everything in Kendall is made of rock. And he kicked the ball over into the next door neighbor's garden which was actually below ours so I had to climb down, throw the ball up and then climb back up again. And as I put my hand on the top of the wall, which is solid rock, David very, very helpfully, uh, as I put that hand up to, to climb, he very helpfully, I take it he was being helpful, took a great uh, rock as much as a two-year-old could carry, which wasn't very big, but when I put the other hand up to avoid uh, the rock putting on that hand, he dropped it on the other one instead. And he completely splodged my finger. And even now, the effects are so long-term that when it's cold weather, this finger turns absolutely blue and the sky is going to be with me for the rest of my life. That is what a small rock can do. And it is fatal to go up against Jesus. If he is a rock and we choose to take him on. Yes, they will kill Jesus. The builders will reject the stone. But God will raise him up and make him the greatest stone there is. 
And if we go against that stone, it will be to our peril. And the Bible wants to understand God's greatness in that way, not just in his goodness. Now, how does that affect us today? Uh, as we understand that God is good, God is patient, and God is great. Well, it might be that you are new to church things, and you've already begun to understand that there's a difference between Christianity and churchianity, although a lot of Christianity comes across as churchianity. Well, churchianity is ultimately about church, but Christianity is all about Jesus. And there is a clash between those who just want the church without change and those who God intends to change to be like his son. And that clash is there in the Christian scene, not because the Bible is not clear. The Bible is very clear, but people much prefer the safety of non-action and non-change in temple-type religion than they do in the transforming power of God's work in our lives to make us like his son. Which is the only reason to come to church to experience God forming us into someone like Christ. So if you're someone who's uh, into uh, uh, churchianity, just remember Christianity is just simply a matter of coming to Jesus and being changed to be like him. What happens if you're part of uh, the religious scene and you've notched up a future service in your time and you have wide experience now of what it's like to be part uh, of uh, uh, a church. You've been to others apart from ours. But have you noticed that the biggest opposition to Jesus doesn't come from the equivalent of, say, Muslims or atheists? The biggest opposition to Jesus comes from temple-type religion. That is what we would expect to find on our estate, and that is what we would expect to find across our country. And it's helpful to uh, get some insight into this, because a lot of us might find there's something that wants to connect with the big and the familiar. Roman Catholic friends will feel specially drawn to Roman Catholic church services, which are the same wherever you go right across the world, predictable, reliable, safe. And if you're part of the Church of England, uh, you might feel secure in something that's been in our country over the years and is there in every village, reassuring, reassuringly uh, uh, on the landscape. Wonderful parish churches. It's wonderful to be attracted to temple-type religion um, and to have that flavor to what we do. But you might think, actually, uh, okay, 
we can imagine that that can be slightly dead and dull. Uh, what we really need is to replace that with the newer, livelier uh, Pentecostal uh, churches. Uh, but again, that could be familiar and safe if we've grown up there and we gravitate to that and we feel at home. No, the only alternative to temple-type religion is Jesus, and specifically to see what they do uh, in 1948, which is uh, chapter 19, verse 48 of Luke's Gospel, which is to hang onto his words. That is how to hang onto Jesus. A lot of people will make a big play on doing that in their temple type religion, but frankly, it's the worship and the paraphernalia that goes with that. The hanging on to the words of Jesus is not the central thing. But that is the only alternative to temple-type religion. But it may be that uh, you are somebody who does want to hang on to his words, and you might say, so what can we learn then from this little story? But I wonder if uh, most of us, we're in a small little church, uh, we've come from a much bigger church. It's very easy, isn't it, to... Uh, pine for what is familiar, for the larger numbers, for the bigger crowd. And how can all those people be wrong uh, in terms of the wider Church of England and the kind of security that they offer? Well, let's remember that the temple in Jerusalem was old, established, familiar, home to a large number of people and a den of robbers. Now, let's not just uh, feel at home because it's familiar to us. Now, the new is better, not because of livelier types of service, but because when you offer, and hang on rather, to the words of Jesus, what you end up with is something far, far deeper and richer than temple-type religion can offer. What you end up with is to be filled with gratitude as you understand from Jesus how good God is to set in front of you his blessings in, his li in your life and to say, look, this is all yours. And it gets even better still. Uh, it, the words of Jesus, hang on to those words, will fill us with hope when we fail again and again and again to see that God is patient again and again and again. And hanging on to the words of Jesus will give us a new awe of God. Understanding this is not a God we play with, but a God who nonetheless seriously intends to change us to be like him so that we do reform our ways or repent and start living for him. This is the God who has every intention of doing that with us in our lives. What an amazing thing that we should hang on to the words of Jesus and to learn of God in that way. But there might be questions you have to ask uh, coming out of that. Let me pray first and then we'll have your questions. Um, let's uh, pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we're saddened
that at the heart of a God-forsaking world, there is a God-forsaking church. And that happens not because we uh, uh, reject you outright. We still feel that what we do is all about you, but we don't hang on to the words of Jesus. And we're not changed to be like him. Please, therefore, give us new joy as a church family being wonderfully, humbly, deeply, permanently grateful to you for your goodness as you've revealed that to us in your Son. Fill us, we pray, with hope in those many occasions where we uh, flop and fail because you are just so patient with us. And please would you give us that new sense of awe that we think you are such a great God that we want to fear you and in deep reverence to learn to live like you. Please help us to take these things seriously rather than to go with what's familiar. And we ask this in his name. Amen.